Good morning, everyone. One moment here. All right, good to see all of you. If you want to open your Bibles to John 11, that's where we'll be after our introduction. Let me go ahead and open us in prayer. Father, that was my second time hearing that uh, devotion. And I think it was even sweeter the second time, Lord. And so we thank you so much for what you've done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we come here to worship you, not out of obligation or to earn any favor or merit from you, but because we have been saved and out of hearts of uh, thankfulness and anticipation of what you want to say to us. And so we are standing with you, Lord, we recognize has nothing to do with our efforts or work, but uh, everything to do with what Jesus has done on our behalf, Lord, in reconciling us uh, to yourself. And so I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, especially on this important topic of death when it's so, um, you know, sensitive and painful. And I'd ask you'd use me as your vessel to rightly divide the scriptures and some, uh, it's really, death has impacted all of us and, or, and will in the future because we live in a fallen world and this is the consequence of sin that is familiar to each of us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us through your word and help us to um, see how we should and shouldn't view death and why, despite the um, terrible finality of it and pain associated with it, when we lose loved ones, there can still be great encouragement and hope because of Christ's victory over it. We thank you and pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen, amen. That's all this morning's sermon is, Can Christians Get Angry at Sin and Death? <clears throat> Can Christians Get Angry at Sin and Death? And so Pastor Nathan preached for me the last two weeks, which I really appreciated so that I could be with my mom and kids following uh, my dad's unexpected passing away and then as we planned his celebration of life. But during that two weeks, I was working on, uh, I didn't have a sermon to prepare, but I was working on this sermon. It sort of developed from some journaling, I suppose, I was doing, recording some feelings and thoughts that I was experiencing. And I wanted to preach this versus jump right back into our vision sermons. We will, we will conclude those in the future. But I wanted to cover this topic uh, as I started kind of viewing my thoughts as a potential sermon, simply because of the number of other people recently who have experienced loss or have uh, become familiar with death uh, when, they, when uh, loved ones have passed away. But quite a few people in our church family that have been through this. For example, the Rayleighs lost their son, Robbie Lettinen, Mike Houck, they each lost a brother. The Schmitzes, Alan, Candy, and Melina lost a cousin and a nephew. Alan Schmitz lost his father. Audrey Templin lost a sister, and then so her children also lost an aunt. Richard and Betty Pender lost a son. Wendy McFarlane lost a brother. Kelly Motzkis lost her father. Bonnie Elshai lost a grandfather. A.D. Cole lost a daughter. Pastor Nathan, just yesterday, he lost his uncle. Uh, Four families have experienced miscarriages. And then, even if we haven't lost loved ones recently, I'm sure most of us have lost loved ones in the past, and we can be certain that we're going to uh, lose more loved ones in the future because that's what life is like on this side of heaven. And this is because death is so what? What would you expect me to put in that blank there? Death is so what? Huh? Final, permanent, certain. There's a lot of different things we can say there, right? And uh, actually a really fitting word, which might cause you to cringe, is the word normal. Death is so normal. I say that, and, and you could disagree, but I looked up the definition of the word normal, and it means usual or common. Normal means usual or common. And if death is something all of us experience, then it is actually one of the most normal um, 
things to, uh, in existence. But again, it doesn't feel that way, does it? Instead of feeling normal, death feels very abnormal. Over the last two weeks, I was wrestling with my feelings regarding my dad's passing, and I tried to evaluate them biblically. And what I mean by that is I tried to look at the morality or perhaps immorality of them. I tried to consider whether these feelings and emotions were good or bad, whether and by bad perhaps I needed to repent of them because this wasn't the way that I was supposed to be feeling. And I want to share something with you that probably won't sound like it has too much to do with this sermon, but if you bear with me, hopefully the point will become clear. So I've been here for 10 and a half years, uh, pastor in this church, and in that time, I've always felt like I could be myself. I never felt like uh, you were ever trying to change me. I thought that I could be transparent. I thought that I could share my, my thoughts and feelings. Uh, obviously, there's a point at which you shouldn't be transparent. There are things that should, uh, shouldn't be shared publicly. But for the most part, I've always felt like I could be myself. Never felt like I had to be someone that I'm not, including even when my dad passed away. Never felt like I had to live up to any other standard or be like any other pastor, except I would say the standard in God's word for elders to, you know, to meet the qualifications that are listed in Timothy and Titus, which is a standard that I should be expected to live up to. But with that said, I think most of the time it's fairly easy for pastors, at least in the United States, to look pretty spiritual and mature. And what I mean by that is we don't ex- um, we're not persecuted. Perhaps we will be in the future, but I, I think it's an insult to persecuted people for us in the United States to talk about being persecuted, to be candid with you. I tend to think that word probably wouldn't even escape our lips if we had familiarity with the suffering persecution that some people experience in other countries. But with that said, with us not being persecuted at this time, it's pretty easy for a pastor like me to be able to stand behind the pulpit, preach the word very boldly, um, you know, look very spiritual, look very mature without having to worry about any repercussions or anything like that. So as pastors, when do we have a real opportunity, for lack of a better way to say it, to demonstrate spiritual maturity? Because it's, not, it's so easy to appear spiritual uh, you know, when preaching, but when is a real opportunity for pastors to demonstrate spiritual maturity? When what? Yeah, when we suffer, when we go through trials. That's when we can give glory to God by bearing up well underneath whatever it is that we're experiencing so that people can see how, um, you know, we have a deep relationship with Christ or that His grace is sustaining us while we're going through whatever we're experiencing. To put it simply, when we're suffering, whether pastor or non-pastor, but really any Christian, that is one of the greatest opportunities we have to be a witness of Christ. It's, It's very easy to look good or it's very easy to praise God when what? I mean, who can't? Praise God when things are going well, when we're not suffering, you know. Uh, I've said before that I think they kind of get it wrong. You know, they always stick the microphone in the face of the athlete who just won the big game, right? I mean, who's not going to give glory to God at that point? They need to grab the guy that just lost (laughs) and allow him the opportunity to give glory to God. But if we use a more sobering example, show me the person that just lost a loved one. Show me the person that just received the cancer diagnosis. Show me the person that's going through something very serious, uh, suffering immensely, and can still give glory to God, and then you'll see someone who has a very deep relationship with the Lord. It's, it's a tremendous witness of what Christ can do in the life of someone when they're going through something very painful and difficult. Then you get to see what people are really made of, spiritually speaking. And so to kind of connect this, the dots or bring this back to 
um, what I was saying toward the beginning, I've never felt the pressure to act a certain way as your pastor. When dad passed away, I, I, I never felt like I had to, you know, uh, be like this person or be like that person. But I did recognize that I was being given an opportunity. I, was, I did recognize that I was given the opportunity to represent Christ well to all of you and that I wanted to do that. And so what that meant was evaluating the feelings and emotions that I was experiencing and determining whether they were godly or ungodly, determining whether they were ones that would please the Lord or perhaps ones that I needed to repent of. And this brings us to lesson one. We should evaluate our feelings. We should evaluate our feelings. determine whether they please or displease God. And how are we going to do that? How are we going to determine if what we're feeling is moral or immoral, appropriate or inappropriate? Yeah, we're going to look at God's Word very wonderfully. I think especially in the Psalms, we get to see individuals who just pour out their hearts, who are going through, uh, you know, especially David, but others who are going through terrible suffering. And uh, why, is it, why is it recorded for us except that God wants us to know that it is reasonable, it is acceptable to feel this way, that we are humans, and these are emotions and feelings that would be expressed. And so we're going to look at God's Word, and I would say in God's Word, we're in particular going to look at our example of a perfect human being, a perfect person. We're going to look at when God became a man and the person of Jesus Christ coming from heaven to earth and taking on flesh and seeing what the perfect person manifested, the feelings and emotions that that were evident from him. So regarding my feelings, as you would probably guess, the, the one that might first come to mind would be grief. There is an amount of grief. And is it acceptable for us to experience grief when we lose loved ones? Yeah, it definitely is. But there's actually a little bit of qualifier on this. There is a way to grieve and there is a way not to grieve. Does some of you know where I'm going with that? We're to grieve, 1 Thessalonians 14, 4, 13, Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul says to grieve, but not to grieve as those who have no hope. And who are those who have no hope? Unbelievers. So basically, Paul's saying grieve as a Christian, but don't grieve as a non-Christian. Paul used the same language to describe unbelievers elsewhere. Ephesians 2.12, he said, you were separated from Christ, you had no hope, and you were without God in the world. And so that's what it's like to be an unbeliever, to, to be hopeless. And so as believers, we should approach many, maybe that's another statement, maybe we should approach everything differently than unbelievers do, uh, especially death, because this life is all that they know. When they lose a loved one, they know they will not see them again. There is no hope for them. But as believers, we grieve with hope. Now, with Dad, I mean, second only to, I shared in, in the eulogy for him last Saturday that I was really blessed to see the transformation that took place in his life when he, when he received the gospel about 15 years ago. I saw it change his heart, and he became a new man. It was really a great gift God gave me, and being able to see Dad develop victory over sins that had plagued him his whole life or seeing produced fruit that I had never seen in his life before gave me greater confidence in, in the gospel itself. And so uh, second only maybe to, you know, Katie, was I the most confident in my father's salvation? And so because of that, I have this great hope that I would, that I would see him again. Now, <clears throat> one of the questions that I believe this sermon um, begs 
is what about when we lose loved ones who are not believers? Where is the hope in that? And I, what I want to say is that sometimes there are almost paradoxical situations created by Scripture. And a, a paradox is when there are uh, two seemingly incompatible, irreconcilable truths, but the Bible presents both of them, and so we must accept them even though they seem to compete or conflict with each other. Does that make sense? And this is really one of those situations. I think a paradox, when we reach those uh, paradoxical places in the Scripture, it's almost when faith can be required more than almost any other time than reading God's Word. Because if we talk about trusting God or we talk about walking by faith, we tend to almost picture like missionaries going over to third world countries and the faith that's required for them to do that. Or we, you know, we think about stepping out in faith and how, how difficult or challenging this would be in the faith required to do so. But many times faith is required with our beliefs or with our theology. And what I mean by that is there are certain truths we must take by faith. We must believe them even if what? Even if what? They don't make sense to us. Even if we happen to disagree. Why do some people reject certain doctrines or teachings simply because they don't have the faith to believe that that is true even though the Bible presents it. And so they say, I don't see how it can be A and B, so I'll just say it's A or I'll just say it's B. But if the Bible presents A and B, we must, ex- we must accept A and B. All that to be able to say this to you. The Bible says that when we go to heaven, every tear will be wiped away. There will be no grief and no sorrow. And what is one of the real questions we have associated with that? How could we not grieve in heaven when we know that there are loved ones who are not saved who are not there with us, right? And I don't know. I don't, I don't have an answer. This isn't, I'm, I am sorry if you expected me, and I'm not, I'm not making a joke, to be able to resolve something that I can't resolve on this side of heaven. All I can tell you is this. The Bible says that we will not grieve and we will not sorrow in heaven. My suspicion is we will know God face to face. We will know him as well as he knows us. We will have so much confidence and trust uh, in him and in his ability to do what's right that we will, be, we will have comfort or peace even associated with the loss of loved ones. I kind of think about Abraham when he stands before Sodom and Gomorrah and he says, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? And as a hype, it was a rhetorical question. He was more stating that God, the judge of the earth, will do what is right. I think about Revelation 19, true and righteous are his judgments. And so when there are things that might not seem right or just to us, We must tell ourselves those words that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. True and righteous are his judgments, even if we can't see how that could be the case on this side of heaven where we see what? Dimly, as the end of 1 Corinthians 13 says. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things, the mysteries belong to the Lord. And so I don't have an answer. I just know this. It will not be something that plagues us for all eternity. And so in that sense, there is even that way in which as believers— when we lose loved ones who are not believers, we can still grieve with hope because we believe that God is going to do what's best. He is going to do what's right and what's just. Now, a close second to grief would be sorrow. I experienced sorrow. I was, and I still am, very sorrowful that I will not see my dad again on this side of heaven. And the word that kind of kept coming to mind for me, and it might be one that you've um, experienced felt or thought of frequently when you've lost a loved one as well as the word final. It just seems so final to me. Death, death, it is hard to believe that dad is gone. It fills me with this sorrow. Now, what is one of the fruit of the Spirit that would seem to um, convince us that we cannot feel sorrow? 
joy. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you're aware that joy is the fruit of the Spirit, you would tend to think, well, then that means that I should not experience sorrow. But these are not mutually exclusive. It is possible, somewhat paradoxical, <laughs> paradoxically, to go back to that, that uh, idea again, to be joyful and sorrowful at the same time. There can be something very joyful in your life, and there can be something very sorrowful in your life, and to have both of those feelings at the same time. And so it would be wrong to think, well, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, so I can never sorrow. Matthew 5, 4 says, blessed are those who what? Who mourn. When we look at when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, did he sorrow? Was he sorrowful? Matthew 26, 36, Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to the disciples, listen to this, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. I can only take this to mean that Jesus was experiencing so much sorrow at that moment as he considered the wrath of, of his father being poured on him for, for uh, all sin, sin throughout history was so much that it almost killed him almost more than the human mind or human body can fathom. You know, he begins to, to sweat these drops of blood as he considers what it will be like when he hangs on that cross and the wrath of his father is poured out on him. And the thought of it, he thought was almost unbearable for someone who had the same human limitations we do, that it almost killed him. That's how much sorrow he was filled with at that moment in the garden. Now, because dad had Alzheimer's, and we knew that it was only going to get worse. We, we had a couple uh, years to prepare and think about that time when, when Dad passed. I, I did say he passed unexpectedly. He didn't pass from Alzheimer's. But because we knew there was a point when, uh, when the Alzheimer's, or we thought the Alzheimer's would take him, we were able to consider that. And I especially was trying to think about how will I feel at that time when Dad passes away? Is there anything... I need to do now to ensure that I don't have any regret later. One of the worst things to ever have to say in life is I wish I can go back. And it's made infinitely worse when you wish you could go back to say something to someone that you no longer have the opportunity to say something to. And so that's at least one thing I would pass along, that if there is someone that you want to say something to, make sure you say it to them while you still have the chance. But Katie and I would have these conversations, and I would ask her, how do you think I'll feel when Dad passes? How do you think I'll handle that? We would dialogue about that. And I expected grief, understandably. I expected sorrow, but I did find myself the last two weeks, or especially after, uh, soon after dad passed, I feel like it subsided somewhat. But one of the strongest feelings that I was experiencing was anger. I just felt angry. I felt angry at dad dying. I felt angry at death. The difficulty with anger is evaluating it because there are scriptures that seem to defend it, and there are scriptures that seem to condemn it. There are scriptures that seem to discourage anger, and there are scriptures that seem to encourage anger. For example, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four: make no friendship with a man given to anger. How does that make anger sound? <laughs> Pretty bad. You're not even supposed to be friends with an angry person. Ecclesiastes 7, 9, anger lodges in the heart of fools. Anger lives or dwells in the heart of foolish people. Obviously, this makes anger sound bad. Colossians 3.8, put away all anger. So anger is something that here sounds like it's supposed to be put off or put away from us completely. But we also know at the same time, 
Uh, as we allow Scripture to inter interpret Scripture, we don't look at verses in isolation, that we know all anger is not bad because who gets angry? God gets angry. Deuteronomy 9.8, Moses told the Israelites, listen to this, the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. The Israelites were so infuriating that I suppose if it had not been for God's um, mercy or compassion or perhaps his faithfulness to his own covenant he made with them, he, he would have destroyed them. His anger against them was so strong. When they complained in the wilderness, Numbers 11.1, 1, when the Lord heard it, the people complained when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Here it sounds like God's anger flared up and then I suppose flashed out in some way as fire to where it ended up burning some of the outside perimeter of the camp in the wilderness. Now, what about Jesus during his earthly ministry? Or another way to say it is you get to see what God was like in the Old Testament, but what about God when God came from heaven to earth and took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ? Was Jesus ever angry? Our minds go to him cleansing the temple. Uh, and I don't know if you know this, that there are two different accounts of him. He did cleanse the temple two different times. He drives out these people who are buying and selling. He starts turning over the money changers' tables. And then in probably one of the uniquest scenes of our Lord and Savior, he constructs a whip, and he's chasing people around, whipping them to get them out of the temple. And so we can assume he was angry. It sounds like he was. It doesn't say that he was angry, but my suspicion is he was. We have to infer that, though. There was one time when we are told that he was angry, though. It was on a Sabbath day, and Jesus was in the synagogue. It was the time when there was the man with the withered hand. The religious leaders were there. They knew that the man with the withered hand was there. They saw Jesus, and they wanted to see Jesus do what? Heal him so that they could catch him healing, catch him doing something good so that they could accuse him. I mean, that's odd to be accused of doing something good, right? But Jesus knew that that's what was going on, and, they, and he knew that these men, these religious leaders, wanted to catch him and did, did not want him to help this man with the third hand. Listen to this, Mark 3, 5. Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to them, stretch out, he stretched, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So Jesus got angry at this religious leader's uh, the religious leaders who had no concern for this man and desired that Jesus wouldn't do anything for him. Now, you could listen to this and you could say, well, you know, this is all good and well, Pastor Scott, but we're talking about God here. We're not talking about man. Even when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about the God-man. So this is different than us as people being, being angry. You know, James 1.20 says that the anger, anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so then perhaps we, you know, we shouldn't get angry. But listen to this. Psalm 97.10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Amos 5.15, hate evil, love good. Romans 12.9, let love be genuine, abhor or hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So these verses tell us clearly to hate or to be angry at sin or wickedness. And this brings us to lesson one. We can be angry at part one sin. We can be angry at part one sin. When I was going over the sermon with Katie, she said, especially our own sin. 
especially our own sin. We should probably be angry at our own, angrier at our own sin than other sin. But there's, I think there's something wrong for, for, you to, for us to love the Lord and see some of the things that we see. There would be something wrong if it did not cause us to be what? I mean, when you see some of the greatest offenses or blasphemies against God, for anyone who has any sort of heart for the Lord, you must feel what toward that? You must feel anger toward that, that blasphemy. You must feel anger toward the offenses or sin or wickedness that we would see around us. There would be something wrong with the person who claims to be a Christian and sees high-handed offenses against God and, and does not feel any anger in their heart um, you know, toward what is taking place. <clears throat> now, here's what we should ask ourselves to determine whether our anger is good or bad. Because I'll tell you this, I'll just be candid with you. Most of the anger that I experienced in my life, I'm not sure exactly how many times exponentially more my anger has not come from um, sin or wickedness I'm seeing. My anger has come from me not getting what I want. So my anger has mostly been uh, stirred up from basically selfishness. And so that's what we need to ask ourselves. Are we angry at sin and wickedness and evil? Which is basically to say, are we angry at the things God gets angry at, or are we angry at what? Not getting what we want, not being treated the way we think we should be treated, and that's not, that's not a moral anger. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. These verses are basically about our selfishness, not getting what we want, getting angry as a result, and then all of the problems and conflicts that are caused as a result of that. So anger that's a result of our selfishness is definitely immoral or bad anger. Anger at sin would be reasonable, justifiable, and legitimate at times. But this still doesn't really resolve the question that I was wrestling with the last two weeks, which was, well, how can I, is it acceptable, appropriate for me to be angry at my father's passing? And I want to show you an account that I think reveals that it was okay and will hopefully allow you to feel comfortable being angry at death too. And this brings us to John 11. This is the familiar account of the death of Mary and Martha's uh, brother Lazarus. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to go ahead and pick up at verse 31. It says, When the Jews who were with Mary in her house, they were consoling her. They saw Mary rise and quickly go out. They followed her. They were supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet. And she said to him, and notice this, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So it seems like Mary is experiencing anger too, but not anger toward death, but anger toward Jesus, right? She says, this would not have happened if you had been here. I believe she was upset with him. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. So we talked about some acceptable feelings and emotions, grief, sorrow, and I believe we're seeing Mary experiencing these, these feelings here. Verse 31 says people are consoling her. Verse 33 says that she's weeping. So this is that acceptable grief or that acceptable sorrow that uh, accompanies the loss of a loved one. But what I want you to notice for the rest of the sermon is the end of verse 33, where it says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. The Greek word for deeply moved 
it means to be indignant or to be angered is anyone using an esv that's that's the bible i preach from and the bible that we typically have in the pews here anyone using esv and see a footnote in their bible by deeply moved well the footnote for that says or was indignant it says that jesus was deeply moved or he was indignant which is synonymous with anger and this brings us to the next part of lesson two we can be angry at part two death we can be angry at part two death we should evaluate our feelings and when we see our lord get angry at death it should convince us that we can be angry at death too especially when we consider that death is a consequence or a result of what what produces death sin does which we can be angry at sin and then death is the product of sin now here's a few quotes from commentaries although there's quite a few more i could give you john MacArthur said the phrase here for deeply moved does not mean that jesus was deeply touched was merely touched deeply or moved with sympathy at the sight the greek term for deeply moved always suggests anger outrage or emotional indignation d.a carson he's a well-respected bible scholar conservative he has a commentary on the gospel of john which is almost 700 pages long i have it in my office and i thought well i'm definitely going to see what d.a carson has to say about this and here's just uh, one part from that commentary he said the greek word for deeply moved suggests anger outrage or emotional indignation almost the same words as john macarthur so in other words this is not just an account of jesus uh, being sad this is an account of him being angry now something i want us to consider which is a great encouragement to me over the last two weeks and i hope can be a great encouragement to you as well is why was jesus angry why was jesus angry at death and why do you think because of the grief and the sorrow that it causes because of the pain that it causes to the his creation to the people that he loves listen to the way this is worded in the amplified if you're unfamiliar with what the amplified bible is it's a, it's a translation that will take certain greek or hebrew words and it will amplify them it'll provide synonyms or it'll explain the the original meaning of those words and listen to how the amplified bible translates john 11 33 when jesus saw mary sobbing and the jews who had come with her also sobbing he was deeply moved in spirit and then it says to the point of anger so the amplified also supports that and then it says to the point of anger at the sorrow caused by death and was troubled d.a carson said jesus is moved by their grief and is consequently angry with the sin the sickness and death in this fallen world that wreaks so much havoc and generates so much sorrow aw pink said the greek word for deeply moved expresses deep feelings sometimes of sorrow but more often of indignation in this instance the holy spirit has recorded the cause of christ groaning it was the sight of mary and her comforters weeping he was here in the midst of a groaning creation which sighed and travailed over that which sin had brought in and this he felt acutely the original language suggests that jesus was distressed to the extremest degree he was moved to a holy indignation and sorrow at the terrific pain which sin had brought he was agitated by a righteous hatred of what evil had wrought in the world and so it seems to me that jesus sees 
what death causes to his people, the grief, the, the anguish, and it causes him to be angry toward it. And I would say it like this. <clears throat> I hate death. I hate that death takes friends and loved ones from us. I hate the death take, even people I might not know, when you just hear about the death of someone who's young and you understand, you feel angry, they should have had more years of life, they, they were taken too young. I hate death for ending lives uh, and causing so much pain, causing so much heartbreak. And the thing that encourages me is my Lord and Savior clearly hates it too. He hates death too. And this is why he weeps. Look at verse 34. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And this is a very a unique window, a very insightful moment where we get to look into the heart of our Savior. We see that he experiences this full spectrum of emotions. I want you to appreciate what this reveals about Jesus when we lose people we love because consider this or not just what this reveals about jesus but i would say what this reveals about god in general because hebrews 1 3 it says jesus is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature what does it mean that jesus is the exact imprint or some other translations say exact nature or exact representation of god's nature Simply put, it means this, to see Jesus is to see God. To see God the Son is to see God the Father, which is why when some of the disciples said what? Show us the Father. And Jesus responds, I believe it's John 14, 9, and he kind of chastised them, and he says, if I've been with you so long that you don't even know that to see me is to see the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father because to see Jesus to see God the Son is to see God the Father. And so here's the point. When we see Jesus weep here, when we consider, when we see Jesus weep here and we consider that we see God through Jesus, then we're also understanding what? We're understanding that God feels. We're understanding that he loves. We're understanding that he experiences compassion. We're seeing that God is moved by the pain and the suffering of his people. So the, the idea in the ancient world was that uh, the greatest God would be a God who was unmoved by his creation. It's stoicism. It's the idea that he would be unaffected, so detached from creation that there's nothing that could, that could um, you know, alter his mood or his feelings. And that's the opposite of the God of the Bible. The Bible presents God as not being apathetic, not being passionless, being um, having emotions not being detached he looks at his creation with feeling the truth is that god feels for us deeply listen to how warren wearsby explains this he said our lord's weeping reveals the humanity of the savior he has entered into all of our experiences he knows how we feel in fact being the perfect god man jesus experienced these things in a deeper way than we do his tears assure us of his sympathy. He is indeed a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, 3. Today he is our merciful and faithful high priest, and we may come to the throne of grace and find all the gracious help that we need, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. What would it take for Jesus to be our, 
our gracious and merciful high priest, except that he knows what we experience. He knows what we go through. He feels those same things. In fact, it wouldn't be too much to say that when we feel things, because we're selfish, because we're sinful, we don't even feel them as fully as we would if we were perfect. Because everything in our lives, all, even our, our, whether it's our faith, whether it's our love, whether it's compassion, even those moral things about us are all affected by sin. There's nothing perfect about us. And so we, we don't even feel as well or, or as clearly as we should when we experience loss. Now, Jesus, being perfect, would feel things in, to a greater magnitude than we would. He would, know, he, would, he would have emotions. He would have feelings that are not at all tainted by sin, that are not compromised by them. Only he would know things. He would know what we go through better than we know what we go through. That's what it means for him to be a great uh, high priest for us. Look at verse 38. Verse 38, it says, Then Jesus deeply moved again. And that's the exact same Greek term from verse 33. He's deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So now we see Jesus is angry again. And this time he's about to do something. Or he's about to do something with his anger. Or do something about what he's angry at. And I want to help you look at this or look at what's about to happen by considering one of the things that I suppose for lack of a better way to say it, you're sort of forced to put up with having me as your pastor, okay? (laughs) Maybe, have you heard me say before that when I start studying a passage or some verses, it kind of becomes my favorite passage or verses? Okay, you've heard me say that before? Okay. Well, that's sort of what happened here because previously I kind of had like, let's say some favorite showdowns in scripture, and my favorite showdowns in Scripture, third, my third favorite would be Elijah on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. My second favorite showdown in Scripture would be David and Goliath. My first, at least, first until I developed a new first favorite, <laughs> would have been Jesus against the devil in the wilderness. I mean, that's a tremendous showdown, and I, I couldn't think of anything to compete with it. But now I think I have a new favorite showdown. <laughs> And my new favorite showdown in Scripture is here between Jesus and death. It is between Jesus and death. And this is what I want you to do if you've never done this before. You need to view death as a person. You need to view death as an enemy. And I don't say that and take any sort of liberties with Scripture. I I say that because that's what Scripture does. Scripture personifies death, which means you take something that's an entity or not a person and you present it as a person. And that's what Scripture itself does with death. Death is personified because it's, it's presented as being what? An enemy, as something that needs to be defeated. You can't defeat error, right? You can't, but you can defeat a person. And so what Scripture does in 1 Corinthians 15, in Revelation 20, when you see death, it's capitalized. It's given a name. It's not a common noun. It's a proper noun because we're to view it that way. And Jesus takes on death, our enemy. Look in verse 43 to see how easily he defeats it. When Jesus said these things, he cried with a loud voice, and he said, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had come out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, I don't know whether this is true or not, but I've heard it said, does anyone know why Jesus might have said Lazarus' name? 
Because if he didn't say Lazarus' name and he just came out, everyone from the grave would have come out. <laughs> and I don't know whether that's perhaps, but he calls Lazarus by name and Lazarus comes out here. And here's the point. He defeats, he defeats death so easily, just three words. Three words that he speaks. Katie and I were going over the sermon and she's like, you just kind of built up this showdown and it's not too much of a showdown. <laughs> and it's not too much of a showdown. There is no titanic struggle. There is no great labor here. It, it does, it's not a back-and-forth battle here where you start wondering whether, you know, death is going to get the upper hand or not. Jesus has that much power over death that he can just speak and he can provide resurrection for people. It was easy for him. And these places in Scripture that capitalize death, probably one of my favorite places capitalizing death is Revelation 20, verse 14. It says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death is so personified in Scripture that it's presented as a person that's what? Cast into hell. God wants us so confident in Christ's victory over death that he sends death to hell. He says this is how, how good you can feel about the victory that Jesus has provided over your greatest enemy, that your greatest enemy is thrown into the lake of fire. Now, why did Jesus let Lazarus die? Because he clear, Jesus clearly didn't want Lazarus, what? Dead, because he raised him from the dead. And so, why would he let him die in the first place if he's just going to raise him from the dead? And that's really the answer. Jesus let Lazarus die so that he could raise him from the dead. Look at verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus let Lazarus die because he wanted Mary, Martha, and all the others present to believe that he could defeat death. There's this verse at the end of, at the end of this gospel, John's gospel, that says that if all of the things that Jesus did were recorded, then all of, there wouldn't be enough room for all of the books that, that would um, have those events. And what, whenever, when I read that, what I think of is there was a lot that could have been recorded, and so the things that are recorded are that much more significant to me because we're getting the highlights. We're getting those ultra-important things that God wants here because there were plenty of other things for God to choose from, from Christ's life that he could have put in the Gospels, but he chose these things, which tells me what? That when Jesus did this for Mary, for Martha, and for the others present, raising Lazarus from the dead, it wasn't just for Mary, Martha, and the others present. The fact that it's put in this gospel is for us, for us to be able to believe, which is what the end of the gospel of John says, right? You, all, all 66 books of the Bible serve these wonderful purposes. Well, John's gospel is unique in that it gives us the specific purpose for which it was written, which is what? I think it's John 17, 21, so that we might, no, it can't be John 17, 21, but toward the end, I think it's in John 21 or 22, so that we might believe. These things are written for us so that we might believe. So if you're ever wondering, let's say you're dealing with an unbeliever who who is willing to read the Bible, and so you say, well, you know, I don't know where to have this unbeliever begin. You can't go wrong pointing them to John's gospel because John's gospel says that the purpose of it is to 
cause people to believe. Now, here's my point. Because this account is as much for you and me as it is for Mary, Martha, and the others present that day, we can personalize this. It can be personalized for us. So look with me at verse 23 briefly. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. What could Jesus say to me? What could Jesus say to me? Your father will rise again. Now, if you've lost a child, perhaps through a miscarriage, and just to uh, pause there for a moment, we are confident in the salvation of unborn children or, or the confident in the salvation of children who are lost through miscarriages not because of sentimentality or, or philosophical arguments. In other words, you never want to argue from sentiment or philosophy. You never want to say, well, I believe this because this is what makes the most sense or this is what I think or I don't believe that because I disagree with it. That's sentiment. That's, that's a philosophical argument. We build our theology or our beliefs from Scripture itself. And so when I tell you that I believe unborn children go to heaven, I'm, that's not me being sentimental. That's not a philosophical belief. I believe that because Scripture, because I believe Scripture, argues that point very clearly for us. And you can come ask me after service if you want to know some of the reasons that I'm convinced of that. But anyway, if you've lost a child through a miscarriage or you've lost a believing loved one, what could Jesus say to you? Your father, your son, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your nephew, your grandfather will rise again. Now, hopefully you notice I said, believing loved one. Resurrection unto eternal life, it is only available for those who have repented of their sins and believe in Jesus. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me for the second time shall never die. Do you believe this? And I could ask you the same thing. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you do, then Jesus, the resurrection and the life, will resurrect you and give you eternal life. And I want to conclude by saying this. Death is extraordinarily difficult and painful. There's nothing else that we, we ever experience that seems to approach it. The finality to it makes it unlike anything else. There's a, it seems as though there's a season of denial we must go through because when we have lost loved ones, it seems impossible to believe that what? They're gone. You just sit there and you wrestle with that and you say, and it's almost like, no, they're not. They can't be gone. I, I must be able to see them again. I cannot believe that I'm not going to, to see them again. And then we have to adjust to this new normal where we appreciate that we actually have lost this person. We will not see them again. And that this has, has really occurred. But if we're believers... <clears throat> We can have great hope in the midst of our grief. For believers, every other believer's death can serve as a reminder of the work that Christ has done. And that would be one of the encouragements that I would give you. Death is a terribly painful thing uh, to experience, but let it be a reminder that where you're able to lift your eyes off of your grief 
to Christ and what he has done for us and the victory that he has given us. Because we don't want to think about death. We keep it out of our conversations. We don't want it to cross our minds, despite how normal in the sense that uh, or how common it is that we're all familiar with it. We know it's going to happen. It's astonishing how little we talk about it, how little attention we give to it, because it makes us so uncomfortable. We dislike it so much. But anytime we're forced to deal with it, forced to accept it, allow it to bring your mind to Christ and the great victory that he has given us over it. Father, we thank you for your son, and we thank you for him defeating the great enemy that we face, or enemies, sin and death. We thank you for his victory over it, and let us be reminded of that victory anytime we lose a loved one. I do thank you so much for what you have done through Jesus for us, the death which previously held us as slaves, just uh, Hebrew says our fear of death, not even death itself, but our fear of it kept us slaves, that we can be freed from that, Lord. I pray for all the people in our church who have lost loved ones recently, that you would be the God of all comfort for them, whether they were believing or unbelieving loved ones. Lord, let us, let us have confidence in you being the judge of the earth who will do what is right. And in Revelation 19, that true and righteous are your judgments, Lord. Help us to trust you and walk by faith, even when things don't make the most sense to us, Lord. Thank you for the comfort and grace you provide when we suffer and grieve through the, grateful, through the great high priest that we can approach to receive the grace and mercy that we desire from his throne. And we thank you and we pray these things in his name. Amen.